In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together to share Holy Scripture, to share the love that you have given to us through Scripture, which we should look at in some ways as love letters from God to mankind. So help us then to interpret what these uh, scriptures mean to us today and how we should apply them. So we ask your blessing on our efforts today and as we go forward in studying the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, because at that time, there was a very definite struggle for mankind to interpret the teachings and the meaning of the life and death of resurrection of Christ. So help us to see how it applies to us today. So we thank you for this and we thank you for all things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Glad to see so many people here and a few people that have joined us just today. Uh, we want to welcome all of you. Um, today we're really going to get into the details of uh, this book we call Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And I hope that you've all had, or most of you have had, the chance to read not only the introduction in your uh, little commentary book, but uh, the first three chapters. Because we want to really uh, get into the um, important parts of what this book is all about. And in order to do that, we've got to start out with a good foundation. Not only a good foundation, but as I said last week, we should have a goal, a personal goal as to why we are studying uh, not only the Acts, but any part of Scripture. And reading through the registration forms, for those of you who put down, what did you hope to get out of this class? Um, I read some very interesting things, and those would probably be the goals for those people who wrote them down. But then there was a lot of people who didn't write anything down. Uh, so it's important that you have a goal when you study Scripture. Partly because all of us, makes no difference of how much education you have, uh, how much uh, Bible study you may have done in the past, we all have questions as to how does this apply to us today? And what does this mean? And uh, it's interesting that for those people who were in uh, religious uh, schools or Catholic schools, particularly the Catholic parish schools taught by the nuns years ago, like I was, and who have not had a chance to bring their understanding of the church's teachings up to date, many of people, I hate to put it this way, but my age, uh, still have somewhat of a childlike, not childish, but childlike understanding of what their faith is all about. It's amazing how many people have not brought their understanding of their faith up to date as an adult. And that's what I'm really trying to do. Uh, the good nuns years ago would teach 
children as they should be taught, primarily from the stories within Scripture. But somehow the stories uh, and their application to life at that time have changed over the years, and we should always be studying Scripture to bring our understanding up to date. If you think about it, and you've heard us of the church uh, talk over the years about the various ecumenical councils that uh, the church has had in, in 2,000 years. Actually, there's been 22 of them. Uh, and we will get into the first one uh, when we get into chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Uh, we won't have to get into that today, but uh, we'll talk about the first ecumenical council. Now, ecumenical doesn't mean uh, the integration of Catholicism with other Christian uh, denominations. And that is what many people think it means. What it actually means is the universal meaning of Scripture for all of mankind uh, and supported by all Christian peoples. Unfortunately, that's misunderstood by a lot of people, but we'll let that go for now. All right. What I'd like to have you do in the beginning is get out this diagram that we gave you last week. If you don't have a copy, there's some more up here. Uh, because we're going to use that this morning because it is important. I'm not going to be reading every word of this. I hope that you have done that uh, since last week. And for those of you who have not had an opportunity, you'll have to sort of catch up with us. All right. The introduction to this book uh, was really discussed sometime uh, last week or over a period of the hour and a half that we had last week. But I want to reemphasize some of the things, particularly on page six. This little diagram that we, we gave you, and on the back side of it, the back side of it shows you how the books of the Bible uh, are sort of put together. And it talks about the event of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right in the very middle. If you look at that and then look at page 6, you'll see there somewhat the same words. It says, notice that the subject of his work, meaning St. Luke, is the events that have been fulfilled among us. He's quoting right out of the Acts. The phrase events fulfilled, that is really the whole meaning of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. As you know, the The Bible is divided into two main parts. The Old Testament. Now, if you look at this, this part of that illustration or diagram, 
you'll see that it says Old Testament up here, the book of the promise. And what does that promise refer to? It refers really to the covenant that was made between God and mankind beginning with Abraham. And that promise really included salvation, but not exactly in that word or those words, all right? The promise and the covenant of the first, the first covenant, I should say, of the Old Testament included descendants promised to Abraham, land promised to the Israelites beginning with Abraham, and God's protection. The protection really included the idea of eternal salvation, but was not used because they would not have understood that at that particular time. So, the book we call the Old Testament really has a better name. Old Testament in itself doesn't mean too much. As I said last week, I was in the grocery store one time standing in line, and there were two women talking about the Bible standing right behind me. One says to the other, well, why, does they, why do they call it the Old Testament? And the other one says, well, it's old. <laughs> so I thought, Mm-mm, no, no. <laughs> sort of left out some important facts there, okay? The Book of the Promise. Now, when you take the New Testament, it is called the Book of Fulfillment because through Jesus Christ, the promises that were made in the Old Testament are now being fulfilled in the New Testament. And the writers of the New Testament, which should be called really the book of the fulfillment, are explaining how the teachings of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection have fulfilled those particular promises from the Old Testament. And if you go down to the, oh, about two-thirds in the middle of this page six here, it says, says, notice that what is said to fulfill the scriptures here is not only the death and resurrection of the Messiah, but also the preaching of repentance in the name of Jesus to all the nations, which is precisely what Acts, the book of Acts, is all about. All right, now, if you want to underline, it says, uh, in the name of Jesus, to all the nations. Underline that, all the nations. The word nations in Scripture, when translated back through the Latin, through the Greek, and through the Hebrew, comes out what? Anyone? Gentile, okay? When the Jewish people refer to the Gentiles, they're talking about, they're talking about anybody who is not a Jew. Now, when I say Jew, please don't uh, think that I'm talking about that in a derogatory way. Or, when I talk about the Jewish people and uh, their faith. I am not being derogatory. 
I am just stating facts. All right? I have some good Jewish friends, and I would not want to offend them in any way. Uh, but we do have to face the facts that the Jewish faith has failed God's purpose. All right? And that is what we want to get into this morning. Let's go on to the bottom of page 7. The little paragraph at the bottom of the page 7 says, People living after the generation of the original eyewitnesses. The original eyewitnesses are those people who saw, lived, uh, and were present at the time of Jesus' teaching and his death and resurrection. Okay? But this book was written sometime like 40 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So the book itself was not written for the people living at the time of Christ. Maybe there were a few left, but not probably many. It was written for everybody else who followed down throughout the ages. says, the people living after that generation needed a way of understanding how the life of Jesus still had relevance. Okay? Relevance, I should say. Not relevance. Relevance. In their lives. And we do today. We still need to know how these events were are meaningful to us today. And so that is going to be the whole focus of what we are talking about uh, throughout this session. How the meaning of the teachings of Christ were relevant to us as individuals and to the church as a whole. It says Luke shows how the life of Christians individually and communally is always some kind of replay of the life of Jesus. Thus, Stephen's death parallels Jesus' death, and the travels and trials of Paul mirror the travels and trials of Jesus. Well, you might say, hmm, I don't think Jesus ever got shipwrecked, and uh, I don't think he was ever lowered down uh from a high wall in one of the old cities in a basket, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the acceptance by the people or the rejection by the people of what Paul is saying. All right. Okay. Let us move on. Any questions so far? All right. The whole idea now of this class is to get your questions answered. You all have questions, I'm sure, and what we want to do is to make sure that by the end of this uh, 10-week session that you will have those questions answered and better understand what this book is all about, okay? Let's go over to page 8. We're still in the introduction now area. Now, you might ask, as we move on to page 12, why does Paul 
no, I'm sorry. Why does Luke, the writer of Acts, who also wrote the Gospels, repeat the whole idea of the ascension? Because if you go to uh, the Gospel of Luke, the very last page, the last chapter, and you don't have to do that because I'll just read it to you. Always bring a Bible with you because you just never know when we're going to be uh, reading that and it's important that we kind of all follow. All right. It says here, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. In his name, penance for the remission of sin is to be preached to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of this. And see, I send down upon you the promise of my Father. Remain here in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out near Bethany, and with hands upraised, blessed them. And as he blessed, he left them and was taken up to heaven. They fell down uh, to do him reverence, and then returned to Jerusalem filled with joy. And they were to be found in the temple constantly, speaking the praises of God. <coughs> Pardon me. And that ends Luke's gospel. All right. It just mentions that very briefly. And if you didn't read anything before or after, it would sound almost as if that happened on the night of the resurrection. It, it, there's no time element there. The reason Paul puts that in his gospel is to end that particular story even though he probably had in mind of going on and writing something further, it was a standalone type of book, and it ended where it should have, with the resurrection of Christ. But now, he comes along in this book, and he goes into a lot more detail of the resurrection and infers to a period of 40 days between the time of the ascension and the resurrection. Okay. I think part of that is because the ascension was really the end of a period of time where at this particular point right here, all right. On this little diagram, we're at this particular point where I'm pointing. And the reason is that Jesus now has ended his role in God's plan of salvation. The ascension ends his particular face-to-face -face role as man representing God and being the face of God to all mankind. And now we are getting into, or going to be getting into, the role of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us that he's not going to be leaving uh, us alone. In Matthew's Gospel, 
He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will be with you to the end of time. All right? And how? Remember, there's only one God. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is with us until the end of time. The whole idea of the role of the Holy Spirit is to take the ideas of creation and all the promises made in the Old Testament, which was the role of the Father, and the benefits of the life, death, and resurrection and teachings of Jesus Christ, and use those to help mankind return to the Father. And that can only be done if we have a direct relationship with the Holy Spirit. Or you might say, have a direct relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You cannot separate them. All right. I told you last week about the little story about uh, someone calling me and saying, she just heard a priest say that the Father or the Holy Spirit was on that cross when Christ was crucified. I didn't see him. I said, well, you got to remember, there was only one God. God was on that cross in the form of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only one who took the appearance of man, representing all mankind. But the whole idea is God was on that cross. And therefore, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit we're on that cross. Anybody have a problem with that? So many people uh, are very much aware of Jesus being on that cross, but give very little thought about the fact that the Father and the Holy Spirit were on that cross just as well. But being pure spirit, obviously nobody saw them. But you can't, you can't separate them uh, whatsoever. They are one God with three divine persons. Or I kind of prefer to say natures because when you say three persons, we get the visual image of, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three individuals. No, three natures. Okay. All right. But it's important that there is a transition between Jesus Christ and his time and his role and now we are going into the time and the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. We are the church, but the church was started by Jesus Christ, handed over to mankind, and it kind of, you know, got bumpy after that, Uh, but with the Understanding that the Holy Spirit was always there, ready to help. And in some ways, actually to intervene, which he did, as we'll see as we go along. Uh, if any of you have noticed in our church here at St. Clair, in the back of the church, up in uh, the point there, is a stained glass window of the Holy Spirit. And that is because the Holy Spirit has always been designated as the guardian of the church. In the front, over the tabernacle, um, 
you'll see a stained glass window of the Lamb of God. All right? Always representing Jesus Christ as the sacrificial Lamb. All right? Unfortunately, I don't like that particular uh, version because technically the Lamb should be standing. It says so right in the book of Revelation that the Lamb is standing even though he was slain. Okay. But that's a relatively minor point, and you might say license of the artist. Okay. All right. Um, let's let's move on here. Uh, the ascension of Jesus Christ on page twelve. When they gathered together, they asked him, "Lord, are you going this time to restore the kingdom of Israel?" And he answered them, "It is not for you to know the times." or the seasons that the Father has established by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, even to Granite Bay, Roseville, and Antelope. Okay. Um, It was always connected between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how this total plan of salvation would work. There was never a disagreement of any kind. It is always, uh, they worked together because, as I said, they were one God, all right? But it's important that we understand this whole idea of the role of the Holy Spirit. Further down in the middle of that page 12 says I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed uh, with power from on high alright now the power that he's talking about here is that the Holy Spirit gave power to the apostles uh, to work miracles to carry on the teachings of Christ and to carry on the uh, ability of of uh, Christ to heal in order to not only draw attention, but to support what they were teaching. That's the whole idea of the miracles that Christ worked. It was not only to draw attention and get people to come and see that he was so different from other itinerant preachers of that time period and that he had the authority to do what he was saying and preaching. And he proves that in one of the stories that was just read at Mass recently. In fact, uh, it was repeated today in Mark's Gospel about what is easier for Jesus to say. Your sins are forgiven or to arise and walk. Uh, Today's gospel was about the healing of the hand, or the shriveled hand of a man, but just recently one of the gospels talked about a man that was let down through the the roof tiles, um, and he was healed from his sins. And then, of course, the Pharisees grumbled because they thought that only God could heal and forgive sin. And they were right. 
but they didn't look at Jesus as God, as we should. So Jesus, knowing that, says, well, what's easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, which he could do and did, or to say, arise from your your bed, your pallet, or whatever, and walk. It was easier, just as easy for him, Jesus to say one or the other, but the purpose is not just to show off. The purpose was to back up what he was saying. And yet that annoyed the Pharisees because it happened to be the Sabbath and they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. You see, what we're going to get into is this clash of belief systems. The Jewish people were established by God, as it says right there in your little diagram, uh, beginning with Abraham, for a purpose. The purpose was to carry the message of God to everyone, to all nations. That is why God chose an, an, <coughs> a nomadic person, Abraham, to go across from what is now Iran or Iraq, we're not quite certain, uh, to Palestine, and develop a family out of which the Messiah would eventually come. All right, But the teachings all along that way were to be spread and carried to all nations. Unfortunately, the Jewish people, rather than being very inclusive of everyone, became very exclusive and remained a closed community. And that was very much against what God was trying to do. And as time went on, the closed community, you know, became what was the promised uh, or chosen people of God, but they thought they were chosen because they were so great instead of chosen for a reason to go out and spread this information, this message from God to everyone else. And as time goes on, because it is a closed community and not looking outward, but looking always inward as to how important they are, that importance seemed to grow particularly in the leader's mind of how great they are and they could do nothing, they began to actually work against God and against what he was trying to do. That is why God brought in the prophets to try to counterbalance that. And what happens? The Jewish people didn't like what the the prophets had to say, so over a period of time, they were all murdered, all right, uh, by their own people. And some of the prophets really wrote some very beautiful stuff, okay, trying to balance the evil that the leaders of the Jewish people had created. If you read the second book of Kings, let me go to just one uh, chapter here in the second book of Kings. I, I needn't read a lot because um, 
you'll get the idea, I'm sure. Uh, I've just opened it up to any page here, and I'm in chapter 21 of the second book of Kings, and it says, But the people of the land then slew all who conspired against King Ammon, and proclaimed his son Josiah king in his stead. The rest of the acts that Ammon did, are, and they weren't very good, were written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. He was buried in his own grave in the garden of Yutza, and his son Josiah succeeded him as king. Well, then if you go down um, and read what Josiah, the son, did, it just says he was worse than the father. And this is time after time after time. If you go to uh, Psalm 81, I'm just going to read the last part of it. Uh, Psalm 81 talks about, first of all, what Jesus, or rather, what God the Father did through the prophets, and then what he wanted really to do, uh, and then what really happened. It says, but my people heard, did not hear my voice, and Israel did not obey me. And so I gave them up to the hardness of their hearts. They walked according to their, um, their own counsels. If only my people would hear me, and Israel would walk in my ways. Quickly I would humble their uh, enemies, and against their foes I would turn my hand. And those who hated the Lord would seek to flatter me, but, but their fate would endure forever. And while Israel, I would feed with the best of wheat, and with the honey from the rock, I would fill them. In other words, Jesus, I'm sorry. God the Father wanted to do so much through the Jewish people and they turned their minds and hearts against him. And unfortunately, it hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. All right. They are still a very uh, exclusive community. If you think about it, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, uh, as a religious people, never... Uh, sent out missionaries to any country. Um, they will accept people coming into their uh, group. You know, if a, a person, uh, a Gentile, marries a Jewish person and wishes to become a Jew, uh, that's fine. But from then that point on, they must observe all of the Jewish laws uh, and rules and regulations, etc., and denounce virtually everything else. Uh, that is not what God wanted of them. And therefore, through Jesus Christ, he has opened the door, and the chosen people then became those who accepted Christ, and Christ has constantly preached, and Christianity has constantly preached the inclusiveness, the all-inclusiveness of their teachings. In other words, everybody should belong. All right? Everybody should understand what the meaning of the teachings of Jesus Christ were and still are. And that we call today evangelization. And that is what we are all currently responsible for. It is our duty uh, to explain our faith and 
the teachings of the church to others as they wish to know. Not forcing it upon them. I don't think any of us really like to be beat over the head with religion. But for those who, people who are really interested, it is important that they be, they have the opportunity. And so what I'm asking you, and I don't want you to raise hands or anything, but how many of you, and this is something that I want each of you to think about in your mind, but how many of you, if you were confronted, confronted by a person uh, and asked to explain why are you a Catholic? Could you do it? Uh, there's an interesting uh, statement in the middle of page 13 here. All right. At the top of page 13, the first community in Jerusalem. Obviously, the first community was made up by the apostles and their immediate friends and associates, including the mother uh, of Jesus and another, uh, many other women as well. It says, when they entered the city, they went to the upper room uh, where they were staying. Peter and John and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, <coughs> James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, not Judas Iscariot. All of these devoted themselves with one accord to prayer together with some women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. All right. And this is in response to what Jesus is saying. <coughs> Excuse me. Immediately prior to the ascension is to stay together because in time the Holy Spirit will descend upon them. All right. In other words, they said, you will receive power. Okay. Now, the ascension as we celebrate it today is roughly 10 days before Pentecost, or put it this way. After the ascension, there is a period of 10 days. And what happens here? The whole idea is that God used many of the Jewish celebrations in order to um, implement some of his very important points. Um, Let's back up here. The idea of the birth of Christ happens about the same time uh, that the Jewish people would have celebrated Hanukkah, all right, which is the connection in a way that we have with Christmas today. Christmas and Hanukkah are always celebrated at roughly the same time of the year. All right. And you have many other celebrations. Easter, for example, is celebrated uh, simply because Christ was crucified on Passover, the same great celebration of the Jewish people. Okay. Um, now we have the ascension is 40 days approximately after Passover and we go 10 days longer to another Jewish celebration of Pentecost. Pentecost was celebrated by the Jewish people to celebrate the harvest. Okay. 
uh, it was the spring harvest, and uh, you had many people come from all over to celebrate this great celebration of the Jewish people. And God used that because it attracted so many people who were already there, and it helped to spread the word uh, further than it would have if it was just the local people in in Jerusalem. So Pentecost comes along, and we now have the descent of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to page 16. When the time of Pentecost was fulfilled, there were all in one place together, that is the upper room again, and suddenly there came from the sky a noise like a strong driving wind, and it filled the entire house in which they were. Then there appeared to them tongues as of fire, which parted and came to rest on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them to proclaim. Now, let me stop for a moment here. Fire has always been uh, a sign of God's presence throughout the Bible. Can you think of another time when God was present in the midst of fire? The burning bush, yes, at the time of Moses, back in the book of Genesis, uh, Exodus, rather. Uh, and there are other times that we uh, could refer to. So fire has always been identified with the presence of God, not just the Holy Spirit. The idea of speaking in tongues as the Spirit enabled them to proclaim, uh, this is something that has been an interesting uh, phenomena, and it has caused probably more trouble than it uh, has done for good, uh, because people uh, misunderstand the whole idea of speaking in tongues. When a person is truly speaking in tongues, he is actually, or she is actually, saying something that the Holy Spirit wants everyone to know about. And it is spoken in in a way that is not understood by everyone, but someone nearby will interpret it. Because someone will be inspired to understand what that is and interpret it. I've been in many uh, charismatic renewal uh, meetings where this has happened. And you can tell the authentic from the fake. And believe me, there is a lot of fake, okay, unfortunately. Uh, people sort of get caught up in the, the whole idea and feel that the Lord is telling them something, uh, and they start babbling off, uh, but there's no one who really understands what that is. And unfortunately, that's improper. It's not as uh, prominent today as it was, let's say, 30 or so, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, but we still do have the charismatic renewal program 
which was intended. And I was very much a part of it uh, in the early days. It was intended to activate the charisms that are given to all of us. We are all given certain talents that we are to use on the for the benefit of the church, the benefit of others. We give of ourselves for the benefit of others. That's what the whole charismatic renewal was for. Unfortunately, somewhat like the Jewish people, it became very exclusive and became like a closed community in many ways, and the people kind of refused to go out or step out and use the charisms that they were given, the talents they were given, for the benefit of others. And they just wanted the warm, fuzzy uh, comfort of their own group. And what happens? It dies off. Okay. That's why I'm teaching, because I felt that that's what God uh, wanted of me. Right? And I hope I'm doing a good job. Okay. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven staying in Jerusalem. At this sound, that is the driving wind, they gathered in a large crowd. But they were confused because each one heard the apostles speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed. They asked, are not all of these people um, who are speaking Galileans? Then how does each of us hear them in his own native language? We are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya. You see, they came from all over. As well as travelers from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and yet we hear them speaking in our own tongues of of the mighty acts of God. They were all astounded and bewildered and said to one another, what does this mean? But you see how the Holy Spirit intervene really in this case and permitted these people, the apostles, uh, to speak in all of these languages or actually they were speaking probably in Aramaic or Hebrew but the hearers, the listeners were hearing them in their own language. It wasn't that the apostles were actually speaking in these foreign languages because if one was a one person was speaking and several different people from different nations was hearing in their own language, obviously the person speaking wasn't speaking in all of these different languages. So they were speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, no doubt, and uh, the, the Holy Spirit was permitting the listeners to hear in their own language. And it was a way of spreading the good news uh, almost immediately. Yes. Precisely. Yes. 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 That's what Karen said. These people 
from all of these different countries were hearing this in their own language so that they would go back and talk to others about it and spread the word. That's how Christianity spread so quickly from Jerusalem throughout all of the Mideast very quickly, and we'll see that as we go along. Going on to the next page. You who are Jews, indeed all of you, and this is Peter getting up and saying this, because this is the beginning of Peter's speech, and it's something that I want to spend some time on today, and we won't finish it because it's rather long. Uh, So we'll do part one today and part two uh, next week. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and proclaimed to them, You who are Jews, indeed all of you, staying in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And uh, this is a quote now from Joel chapter 3. It will come to pass in the last days. Uh, let me stop there for a minute. The last days in scripture, when used particularly in this book here, the Acts of the Apostles, does not mean the end of the world. It means these last days. All right? From the time of Christ's ascension to the end of time. All right? It does not mean the end of the world. It could mean the end of the world for individuals because that's when they die. But the end of time. All right? This whole third part of this circle is considered the last days. And I'll get into that a little bit in a few minutes. It will come to pass in the last days, God says, that I will pour out a portion of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Indeed, upon my servants and my handmaids, I will pour out a portion of my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And I will work wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, and a cloud of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the coming of the great and the splendid day of the Lord. But it shall be that everyone shall be saved who calls on the name of the Lord. Alright, you got a couple points in there that I want to go back at. He's talking about that whole period of time from the end uh, of the role of Jesus Christ through the death and resurrection uh, and ascension uh, to the time of the end of time of all mankind, not just the end of the world. Okay. And Joel lived roughly 500 years before Christ when he wrote this. This is one of the, the, the minor prophets who wrote a lot of very important prophecies about uh, the coming of the Messiah 
and what he would do. So you can see that if the Jewish people had really read with understanding and an open mind, God warned them ahead of time that he was going to make some changes because they were not listening to him. And he was going to do these great things, which, of course, are now coming to be. And that is why we call the Old Testament the book of the promise and the New Testament the book of fulfillment because now these promises that were made are being fulfilled. Okay. So when we go over and it was talks about the signs of the uh, earth, the blood, fire, and the cloud of smoke and so forth and so on, he is talking about the end of the world, but it's a measurement of time. The time from the ascension of Jesus Christ to the end of the world. All right. And not just the end of the world. There's another thing here too, um, where it says, and it shall be that everyone shall be saved who calls on the name of the Lord. And I've talked about this many, many times, but it's worth repeating. The word name in scripture means more than what a person is called or identified by. In scripture, it means the whole person in referred to. In this place, in this place, it's saying the name, but if you replace that word name, with the word person, you get a better meaning. The true meaning says, and it shall be that everyone shall be saved who calls on the person of Jesus Christ. All right. (coughs) And that's true throughout scripture. Well, there's a few minor exceptions, but uh, the whole idea of name is very important because in Jewish culture, People did not release their names to strangers. They did not walk up to a stranger and say, Hi, my name is Joe. Or Pete or, you know, Sally or Jim or whatever. Uh, their names were protected because, again, it represented the whole person. If you gave your name to somebody, uh, it means you gave a little bit of yourself, depending on the situation. So name is was protected and uh, it had a greater, deeper meaning than what we use it today. When we talk about name, you know, it's, it's just uh, a label, you might say, representing somebody, but not in this culture. And so when we talk about the name, for example, when we say... In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're not just talking about the name of the Father, because what is the name of the Father? We don't know. We have no name for Father. We have no name for Holy Spirit. You know, Holy Spirit is sort of a title, not a name. Even Christ is not a name, it's a title. What we're talking about is in the person of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Susan? Yeah. Um, 
down in verse 22 on page 20. You who are Israelites, hear these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man commended to you by God with mighty deeds, wonders, and signs. The word signs is often used in place of miracles. For example, in the Gospel of John, John never uses the word miracle. He talks about the signs that Jesus worked. And in John's Gospel, there are only seven of those signs, seven being one of the sacred words uh, of the Jewish culture, referring that John is including all of the signs or miracles that Jesus worked, but he's only actually naming in detail seven. So the word signs is very important. Let's go over to the next page because there's so much on there. This again is Peter's speech. All right. My brothers, one can confidently say uh, to you about the patriarch David that he died and was buried and his tomb is in our midst to this day. But since he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that neither was he abandoned to the netherworld, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is Peter talking about David, who is talking about the Messiah. you got to kind of keep it straight. Yes, all right. God raised this Jesus, and of this we are witnesses, exalted at the right hand of God. He received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and poured it forth, as you both uh, see and hear. For David did not go up into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, this phrase, which is a quotation from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, is used, excuse me, in Matthew's Gospel to confuse and to teach the Jewish people about Christ. Uh, it says, if the Messiah says the Lord is my Lord, how can he be both? How can he be Lord and be Son as well? All right, because in Matthew's Gospel, it's talking about the uh, Messiah being the son of David. All right, so how can he be the son of David and be the Lord? Well, it's because the whole idea of the dual nature of Jesus being both God and man was not understood at that time. Jesus as God, is David's Lord. Jesus, as man, is David's descendant, and therefore, son. That's how it's explained. Does that make sense? It's simple when you really think about it. But, of course, these people did not understand the dual nature of the Messiah. 
what what Peter is trying to do here in this speech is to compare David, who was the image of what the Jewish people in their culture and at the time of Jesus thought that the Messiah should be like. Because they wanted a Messiah who was a military ruler, you know, a knight on shining armor who would get rid of the Romans and restore Israel to a great superpower, both politically and economically. And that wasn't part of God's plan of salvation. But that's what they wanted, and that's part of why they would not accept Jesus, because first of all, he came as a humble baby born in, you know, a far-off little village of Nazareth, and, uh, you know, he, he just wasn't anybody special to them. And they were looking for this knight in shining armor, as I said, who would uh, free them from the Romans and restore them to a great uh, power. And so they kind of rejected him and would not open their minds to all of these scriptures. And yet Peter is now saying that David died and is buried because we know where his tomb is. And Jesus died, but God raised him up again. And he is alive and well. So there is something greater here than David. And why don't you open your mind and your heart to it? Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Down in the commentary, right in the middle of the page, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right till I make your enemies your footstool. The final verse of the speech summarizes the whole speech uh, succinctly. Well, we haven't gotten to the final uh, verse yet. Okay. And now they heard this, and they were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the others. In other words, many of these people at the time of the first Pentecost heard and were converted, you might say, in their mind and their heart. Probably not all of them, but many were. And they asked Peter, what are we to do, brothers? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is made to you and to your children and to all those far off, whomever the Lord our God will call. He testified with many other arguments and exhorting them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept his message, accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 persons were added. Now, there's sort of a a little uh, interlude, you might say, between here and, and uh, chapter 3 about the communal life. They devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles and their communal life to the breaking of the bread 
and to prayers. Awe came upon everyone, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their property and possessions and divide them among all according to each one's needs. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple area and to breaking bread in their homes. They ate their meals with exultation and sincerity of heart, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. This idea of breaking bread, that's the only essence, you might say, of the Last Supper that has existed in an almost identical way down through the ages. These people at the time of the apostles, that's all they had, was the whole idea of the breaking of the bread that Jesus initiated at the Last Supper. You know, taking the bread and uh, the wine as well, and saying, this is my body and this is my blood. Do this in commemoration of me. And that is the very core essence of our Mass. But it is also based on the whole idea of the Passover ceremony that the Jewish people were celebrating uh, annually at that time. So it wasn't something new to them. The offering of the bread and the wine was different, but not new. Okay. Uh, it was something that they could identify with because they were offering up in the Passover meal uh, the matzah and the roasted lamb. Well, now since the death of Christ, the whole idea of the roasted lamb had begun to uh, take lesser importance. And after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, even the Jewish people have eliminated uh, animal sacrifice. And so you don't see in any part of the civilized uh, or modern world today animal sacrifice for uh, religious purposes. Okay. You might find that in some cults, but that's a totally different thing. Okay. The breaking of the bread is what is essentially the consecration of the host uh, or the bread and the wine at Mass today. Just think about what our faith would be like if we didn't have that. What would our Sunday worship service consist of if we didn't have the consecration of the bread and the wine and the receiving of it in the communion. Wouldn't really be a very meaningful thing, would it? Songs and, and prayers and uh, maybe a teaching and that's about it. Okay. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. That's right, yeah. And that's, of course, why Jesus said this. Do this in remembrance of me. It's always something that brings us back to the Last Supper.
Okay? But there's another meaning to do this in remembrance of me. He's telling us to go out and teach all of those things that he taught, like he did. So, remember that to fulfill, do this in remembrance of me, meanings, means more than just going to communion. It means really evangelization. The spreading of the whole word and the idea of extending the invitation to come and participate. Well, unfortunately, Jose, that's why, you know, we're human beings. We need to be stimulated. What, what Jose is just saying here is that, is there something special in the whole idea when the priest offers the communion or the consecrated bread and wine as the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ? we seem to gather together in our minds and hearts at least at that moment, not always the rest of the time, but at least at that moment, and we are centered on the one thought of worshiping of Christ. But if we don't see that, um, such as when we go to church and the tabernacle is there, but there's no uh, mass going on, do we really pay attention to the fact that Jesus is still present in the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle? Some people do, but you see, we're getting away from that, unfortunately, that. Yes. She said she was taking exception to what I said because she said, that people do genuflect or do bow towards the tabernacle. And I said, yeah, a few do, but most of the people are getting away from that. And, yes, I was also. Uh, but it is being forgotten, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, well, that's true. And what Karen just said is that uh, in her case and, and others, of course, when they do come to pray in the temp in the te- in the church, excuse me, I was going to say temple, uh, in the church, uh, with the mind of devotion, that they do think of, of God, and that's true. But there again, you've come with that particular idea. And you brought it with you, all right? Uh, Jose also mentioned that 
when the monstrance, including the consecrated host, is exposed on the altar, at least most people are aware of the presence of Christ and do show reverence. Uh, but it's true, we are getting away from uh, extending reverence and adoration to God the moment we step in. Just, just stop for a minute, close your eyes before Mass starts, say two minutes before Mass starts, um, or before the announcements uh, on a Saturday or Sunday morning, Saturday evening or Sunday morning, and it sounds like you're at a ballpark. Yeah, yeah. It's not the way we were ever. <laughs> no, no, no. Now the dear nuns used to wrap us over the... Uh, knuckles if we talk to church, you know. Well, I don't think that's, has to be that strict. But I do feel that you come to church to worship God. And what is worship? What is prayer? Prayer has a simple, very simple definition, but a very deep meaning. The definition of prayer in the old Baltimore Catechism is, prayer is the lifting of the mind and the heart to God. Okay? Very simple. Doesn't say anything about what position you're at, or what ceremony you're in, how you're dressed, or anything else. The lifting of the mind and the heart to God. When one of those is missing, it is not prayer. Okay? And you can rattle off and babble uh, for an hour, but if your mind is and heart are not connected in what you're doing, it is not prayer. Did you have a question, sir? You're right. You're right. But are we worshiping him? Well, in a way we are. Because if we are trying to better understand Holy Scripture, then that is a form of worship. Yeah. Because I, I mind and our hearts are connected in trying to improve our faith. That is a form of worship. So we needn't be down on our knees. You know, St. Paul tells us in one of his letters that we should pray, pray constantly. And I've had a number of people say, well, how can you pray constantly? I mean, my knees would just not take that. That's not what he means. He means that you should live in the spirit of prayer, which is, again, Lifting your mind and your heart to God. Very simple, but not very easy to follow through. Let's continue, because we're just about out of time. Um, Chapter 3 begins with a statement that would not be in the headlines today of any newspaper. The cure of a crippled beggar. Now, they might say something about 
the cure of a mobility-challenged individual who was in dire impoverishment. Right? Okay. But here is an... Uh, I'm just being facetious, of course. But here's a point. Uh, it's sort of an interlude in, in Peter's long speech, which we will actually take up next week. Um, with the whole idea that Peter is given the power to work miracles. Again, not only uh, to draw attention to what he is preaching and teaching, but the whole idea of backing up what he is saying by the power of God working through him. And that's the way we should look at it. I want to take up the rest of this next week because I don't want to... uh, But you have some very important things in here. For example, the whole idea of on page 25, what what Peter is saying right at the top here, a prophet like me will be the Lord your God, I'm sorry, the prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up for you from among your own kinsmen. That is a prophecy that was carried out through the Jewish people, uh, and that is the one prophecy that eventually morphed into the whole idea of the coming of the Messiah. That was originated by Moses just before he died and was carried for nearly 1500 years down through the Jewish people and eventually around the 3rd century B.C actually became the basis for the belief of the Messiah. And I'll get into a little more of that next week. Before we leave, are there any questions? Well, I hope you got something out of today's class. class, And we'll continue to get something more out of it. Uh, And that's the whole purpose of studying. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for permitting us to kind of uh, rehash scriptures in our own language, in our own thoughts, to see how they apply to us today. We ask this solely for the purpose of better understanding how we might come closer to you and be a greater uh instrument in your hands for the furtherment of this plan of salvation. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forth. We just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.